Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. Following the murder of George Floyd, protests erupted in many cities around the world. Terry Jacobs, an independent photojournalist, was documenting protests in the streets of Portland, Oregon on August 18, 2020. Police declared an unlawful assembly and ordered the crowd to disperse. Terry was struck repeatedly until she fell to the ground. Her assailant was Portland police officer Corey Budworth, and when she looked up, he bashed her in the face. There was no justification for the excessive use of force against Terry Jacobs, and she sued the city of Portland. Terry was not only awarded a $50,000 settlement, she also received an apology from Officer Budworth. With me are Terry Jacobs and the attorney who represented Terry in her lawsuit against the city of Portland, Juan Chavez with the Oregon Justice Resource Center. Welcome. Hi. Good morning. So, Terry, as a photojournalist, you were documenting a protest and you instead found yourself involved in a terrifying experience with a Portland police officer. So, what happened the night of August 18, 2020? There was a protest. I believe we were at the Multnomah County, one of the Multnomah County buildings. I was taking photos. And when the police came out, they were pushing us down a street. And I could see my friend who was surrounded by police officers with their batons. We were all moving off the street. I could see her because I could hear her, her speaker playing. So I knew that that was her from the sound of her speaker. And I knew that she had physical problems with her knees. And I could see her surrounded by cops being, uh, looked like they were all hitting her with their batons. So I went to go help her stand so that she could move. And while I was assisting her, that was when I got spun around and, um, and knocked and then eventually to the ground. And then where I was sitting on the ground, showing the officer my press badge. um, And that's when he hit me in the head. So you were carrying a press badge and you were there, you weren't there protesting, you were documenting the event. Correct. On many occasions, I was part of the protest with my camera. On this occasion, I thought I would try going as press with a badge clearly identifying myself as press and staying on the outskirts, not participating in the protest. I thought that I would, you know, it would be a different perspective. And honestly, I thought that it would be safer to be press since the police are meant to respect the press. Which clearly did not happen. What were your injuries? My injuries, um, I had really bad whiplash, which I was being treated for for like over a year afterwards. My head was bruised and I had a lot of um, bumps on my head. I thankfully was the blow to my, the front of my head, which was like what sort of what spurred all of the um, legal issues afterwards. Um, It was, it hit me right on my full face respirator. So that, you know, prevented a much bigger injury. And there is a video of this assault. Correct. Juan Chavez, you served as her attorney in the uh, settlement case? Correct. Yeah, in the civil case. 
when uh, Officer Budworth was indicted, he was indicted in June of 2021 on a fourth degree assault charge. Now, this is a misdemeanor. And was this a first for the uh, Multnomah County District Attorney's Office? Certainly from the 2020 protests. I don't know about any prior criminal indictments of then serving police officers, but at least as far as I was aware, this is not something that's happened in the last 20 years at, at minimum, which uh, it, it was a bit of a shock to to me that this is the case that kind of rose that scrutiny, not to minimize what happened to uh, Terry, but fundamentally, I think Terry would agree this is something we saw 6,000 times over the course of several months in uh, 2020. So Budworth wasn't certainly alone in acting in this way. But clearly the uh, the shock of that that video and, and the injuries that, that Terry suffered got somebody's attention, which I'm ultimately grateful for. Would she have had a case had there not been a video? Uh, she certainly would have. I, I think the difficulty in prosecuting these cases, certainly even just in the civil realm, is the lack of information, the lack of documentation of what exactly occurred that evening. You know, protests are, are unique in, at least in my, um, my practice, because there is so much video very often. These are interactions that the public has with police daily, routinely, unfortunately. You know, at a protest, though, there are many thousands of cameras trained on these uh, incidents, and um, it, I think it really kind of unearths what we all know is happening regularly. And Officer Budworth, uh, now he was a member of the Portland Rapid Response Unit of the Portland Police Bureau. And uh, talk about what happened as a result of his indictment. So when the indictment came down, the rapid response team, in pretty short order, announced that they were all collectively resigning from the rapid response team, which, you know, to be clear, it's not like they were quitting their jobs or anything, or even quitting policing protests. Really, this was a volunteer squad of, uh, of police officers who do additional weapons training predominantly, and are then called on to respond to this uh, kind of event or, you know, sometimes sporting events or, or that kind of stuff. But they all collectively quit, um, at least that, that voluntary extracurricular team, in protest of this prosecution. The police union came out saying how this is totally in line with our training. You know, this is uh, hunky-dory, uh, which is definitely troubling if you're considering that this training is, in fact, criminal criminal activity, but certainly they don't see it that way. And Terry, how are you now, two years later, physically, emotionally? How are you doing? Um, I'm doing okay. I still get afraid when I see a police officer. I don't feel like I can call the police to help me for any reason, because knowing that they're arbitrarily attacking people on the street and, you know, being one of them, I never know if you know, if I needed something, if I needed help, I don't feel confident or trust that they would actually help me. Physically, I'm mostly healed from the injuries. Let's talk about the restorative justice process that you went through with Officer Budworth. And who approached you with that different process? The district attorney, Mike Schmidt. 
So after my case went through with the civil suit and I was awarded a settlement, then the district attorney reached out and interviewed me about filing charges against the officer, criminal charges. And so once the criminal charges were filed, he pled not guilty. And the DA brought it to my attention that this was an option to do this restorative justice process. And the way that he positioned it was that if I were to do this process with a police officer, then this could open the door for utilizing this process for other people who have been arrested and facing criminal charges to avoid prison sentences and to stay out of the criminal justice system. So that was a big draw for me as to why I agreed to do this. So yeah, I just wanted to say that because I think that's really important that they don't usually do this process with for misdemeanors, but because it was such a high profile case, because it was with a police officer and because of the impact it could have showing the police bureau that this is a process that can can be used for other people, you know, people that potentially could be really negatively affected by having a criminal charge against them. Um, that was sort of the reason why I agreed to go through this process. And so the process was with two independent, well, I don't know the organizations that they work for, but two separate um, restorative justice practitioners. And I met with them multiple times prior to meeting with Officer Budworth. We talked about things that I wanted to hear from him, things that I was not going to be okay hearing from him, just so that they could mediate and keep it a safe space for when we did meet. Um, so, I mean, I think we started, I started talking with them in January. And so it took, you know, however many months to complete the process. And then it came time to speak with Officer Budworth. So talk about that experience. Um, yeah, it was not very enjoyable. Um, I was hopeful that he would hear what I had to say, hear my experience, and he would empathize and see things from my perspective. Um, I thought he would be more open to not hearing me out. I mean, he did hear me, but I guess I was just hoping that he would understand my perspective more and feel bad about his actions more than I feel like he actually did. And we met a couple times and, you know, he comes from a very different background than I do. He's a police officer. He's very proud of that. And so I was trying to give him some awareness of not just my situation with him, but policing in general and the impact that his actions and his fellow officers' actions had on the people protesting, on the city of Portland, on the Black people in the city. And he wasn't really willing to hear that. So it was a bit challenging. And our second time meeting, I didn't feel like he was, I felt like he was trying to claim himself as the victim because he had, you know, he'd been on um, paid leave for however many years and he has children and wife and they've been suffering. And so I kind of left that meeting pretty frustrated, but willing to continue the process. I just didn't really want to speak to him anymore. So I decided that the video apology was going to be the most important thing for me to feel like closure and to feel like justice had been served because it was something that 
I felt like I needed and I thought the city also needed and the people who were protesting needed to hear. Um, it wasn't just about me and him. It was about the larger community as a whole. And so when I decided that the video was the most important thing, then I spoke with the facilitators about what was important to hear in that video, what I needed him to say in order for me to feel good about it. So it was very much, you know, bullet points of what I wanted him to say, but he was the one who had to say it and to actually deliver that. So that felt like it was, it served a purpose. What were his words or reactions that you felt he wasn't really hearing or accepting your, what you were asking of him? Well, he was very defensive and he had an excuse for, for everything. Um, you know, it wasn't his fault. It was bad information. He, you know, didn't quite see that his actions were wrong because he felt like, or he told me that he had thought something else happened that actually didn't happen. And so that was ha what he was acting upon. We had some, not differences, but it was a bit frustrating to, to hear him say, I'm sorry, but it was because this, instead of just, I'm sorry for harming you. It was your decision to end the discussions and just say, I need a public apology. Correct. The process was very much, was very much based off of my needs and what was important to me. I was setting the things that I needed from him, things that I needed to happen in order for me to feel like it was justice. And so the video was the, the major thing that I needed, the video apology. Terry, I'm going to play the apology from Officer Budworth. Hello, my name is Officer Corey Budworth. I am recording this today to apologize to Terry Jacobs. On the night of August 18, 2020, I was assigned to the Portland Police Bureau's rapid response team to respond to protests. On that night, as we were clearing the street of protesters, I came into contact with Ms. Jacobs and ultimately hit her in the head with my baton. I acknowledge the physical and emotional harm my actions caused, and I'm committed to ensure that I do not cause this kind of harm moving forward. I have had the opportunity to meet with Ms. Jacobs and speak with her through restorative justice. Through this insightful and challenging process, I had the opportunity to apologize to her privately. During my reflection of the evening, the force used against Ms. Jacobs could have been avoided, and I'm sorry, Ms. Jacobs, for unnecessarily hitting you in the head with my baton. In addition, the time spent with Ms. Jacobs has given me an opportunity very few people have had since 2020 to reflect on what the events and time period meant to police, protesters, and the city at large. I understand the harm that was caused was not limited to Ms. Jacobs and was felt by others in the community when there was a great distrust of law enforcement. As a Portland police officer, I want to apologize for my contribution to any loss of trust to that community that I serve. Throughout this experience with Ms. Jacobs and the RJ process, I am committed to use what I have learned to help make positive changes throughout the Portland Police Bureau. So Terry, are you satisfied with that apology? There's been some criticism, as you know, that the apology was disingenuous. Were you satisfied with Officer Budworth's apology? 
I was satisfied with it when I first heard it. Um, he makes a commitment to do better and makes a commitment to assist in changing the culture of the police force, which was something we had talked about and something that he did agree on, that the ways that the culture of the Portland police is very skewed. And, and so he did agree to that when we spoke and he committed to doing something, you know, we don't know what that is right now, but hopefully in the near future, some, he will, that will become known. He touched on all the points that I needed him to touch on. Um, and like I said, I know that wasn't easy for him to apologize without defending himself. So I appreciated hearing that. Juan, a lot more came out of this than the $50,000 settlement, an apology from a Portland police officer. Can you talk about some of the other positive things that have come out of this whole incident? Well, some of those things I, we might not know or hear about for some time. I mean, I think from, from my perspective, this was a great example of what many people experienced out in the streets. And it really does show that if we shine a light on these incidents, if we look at it, not not how we, we usually give the, you know, the, the rotating glasses to police actions just generally, if we look at what they do, and if what we find is criminal activity, I mean, I think that that should shock us, that should cause us to uh, change our tactics, to reevaluate uh, what it is that we're asking police officers to do. And, you know, I think partly... That might have been the critique of the RRT themselves when they quit, that more or less they were being asked to do things by leadership, by uh, City Hall, that ultimately put them in a position to to go out night after night and uh, uh, commit these acts. So I think there's so much more that should have been done. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm pleased with these with these outcomes, and, and I should say that you know, I think the restorative justice process, that is not something that I that I could have achieved through the civil process, you know, for better or worse, it's good at one thing, and it's getting people compensated for the injuries that they suffer. But what it can't do is force somebody to do something like what Budworth did, which was uh, do a video apology. And in part, that also goes to Terry's strength in sticking with this process, holding to it even as it was uncomfortable. And as it wasn't, you know, quite apparent that this officer truly did feel sorry for what he did. You know, I think as we all learn more about restorative justice, we'll hopefully come to understand that just people don't change that quickly. But that's not entirely the point. The point is to bring peace to the victim and also plant those seeds. You know, it'll it'll take time, but it'll grow hopefully in the minds of people like Mr. Budworth and uh, they'll hopefully learn that this was a tremendous gift that he was given. But one, during all of this, the Department of Justice also uh, submitted a letter to the city of Portland that shone some light on the Portland Police Bureau. Can you talk about that letter? Sure. So for the last 10 years, 10 plus years, actually, the uh, U.S. Department of Justice has been investigating, monitoring, and ultimately did sue and, and got a settlement agreement with the city of Portland for its pattern and practice of using excessive force on, particularly they shone a light on uh, persons with mental illness or people in mental health crises. But 
you know, it, it still fundamentally is grappling with excessive force questions in the Fourth Amendment. So that's why the protests would have been kind of part of this this whole um, investigation by the Department of Justice. But, you know, in the early months of, of 2020, the city had been in substantial compliance with this settlement agreement, according to the Department of Justice. And that lasted about six months until uh, the protests began and uh, everything that had been built over the last few years fell apart. Many of the requirements by the Department of Justice just really require that police officers document what they do, fill out reports saying what was their justification for force and have supervisors read those reports and determine if it's good enough to kind of meet constitutional scrutiny. All of that broke down within a month. It was just widely known that these officers weren't completing these force reports. And when they were, it was demonstrating wholly inadequate constitutional analysis on what their actions truly meant. And in part, what the Department of Justice really highlighted was that PBB commanders, people who were reading these force reports and also training these officers, were more or less saying, if it's at a protest, it's fine. There are different directives in the Portland Police Bureau's manual that describe what is constitutional uses of force. And then there's another section on crowd management that seems to entirely undermine what their use of force standard is. So what we continuously saw was, well, you know, these officers were trained to think that, well, if it's a crowd, then I can shoot tear gas at all of them um, if I have probable cause for one person. Department of Justice and the United States Constitution would say otherwise. And so that letter was to inform the city that they were no longer in compliance with the settlement agreement and that if they didn't remedy this, uh, they were going to take them back to court and uh, maybe get contempt findings. Um, That ultimately resolved in another addendum to the settlement agreement. It included body cams, that kind of stuff. And now there's a potentially another section of the settlement agreement that might be amended, but that's uh, truly the tell. There is a Portland Independent Police Review that did review quite a number of use of force related cases during the protests of 2020. And a a number of use of force settlements have cost Portlanders millions over the years. Can you talk about that one? Uh, Sure. So the IPR is a, a city body that is meant to take citizen complaints about police officers and investigate them separate from the Bureau. Now, I think what what's understood in the, certainly from other lawsuits that we've done, as well as uh, this one, is that the Bureau's internal affairs office also more or less deals with the higher level uses of force, you know, the deadly force, for instance, and routinely uh, finds those within compliance. There's other layers of uh, kind of bureau bureaucracy that also insulates officers from from scrutiny. And then in the rare cases where there is, you know, appropriate scrutiny, I'd say I, I'm thinking of the Hunsinger uh, saga with uh, then Commissioner Hardesty being accused of something that she hadn't done. That officer got put through the whole process and remarkably got disciplined and fired and arbitration brought him back in. Uh, This is all to say that multiple levels of city government, you know, despite perhaps best efforts, uh, just cannot hold Portland police officers accountable for their bad acts. That ultimately will blow back 
another day. And, and uh, that's the price that the public ends up paying in the form of these, uh, these settlements. Police union uh, in Portland said some disparaging remarks about Terry Jacobs. Sure. And, and happy to, to let Terry answer that. Just my piece, that is entirely, <laughs> I think, speaks to the attitude of the rest of the Bureau that how dare you tell us that what we did that night was at all wrong. I think they're well aware that it's not them paying the legal bills for the city. But it's another thing when these officers are being personally held accountable. They certainly wanted to draw a line there. And if one officer is then suddenly criminally liable, then I don't think it's wrong to think that there was more criminal liability from these officers that summer that ultimately went unprosecuted. Not just the president of the police union, but also the mayor, Ted Wheeler. I don't think he necessarily spoke about me particularly, but he was constantly criticizing and condemning protesters and people who were there for their violent criminal behavior. And, you know, these violent criminals are going to be held accountable and all of that. And then when this incident occurred and criminal charges were brought against a police officer, he said nothing. The mayor said nothing about the criminal behavior of this police officer. I had written Ted Wheeler an open letter asking him to respond since he was so loud about criticizing the citizens of the of the city and said nothing about the violent criminal behavior of a police officer. And then the president of the PA, he made a statement calling me a criminal and slandering, you know, saying all of these things that I was in the wrong without actually looking at the situation, without actually looking at what the police officer was doing, which we now know he's admitted his wrongdoing. But there's been no apology or no public statement from anybody except from the police officer. So two years later, Officer Budworth publicly apologized to you. And yes, one, I hope he understands and views this as a gift. So the fourth degree assault charge was dropped. And is he back at work as a police officer? I don't know. <laughs> he could be. He probably is. But he can get his job back. Is that correct? Yes. So it's my understanding that with this lifted, he would be back on the job. And since it's dismissed, it's not not preclusive of him being a police officer. There could be other professional standards departments in the state of Oregon, like DPSST, that might look into it. But otherwise, uh, as far as the Bureau is concerned, I think he's back on the job. Terry, you say there still is a distrust of the police even with this apology from Officer Budworth. He did promise to make some changes, which you uh, were seeking, changes in the police bureau. What are you hoping to see from him or from the Portland Police Bureau, in addition to maybe more uh, restorative justice cases such as yours? Yeah, you know, I don't actually know what what that would look like because I'm not a police officer. I think that's something that would have to come from them from, you know, I feel like I would notice changes when when the city trusts the police officers more, you know, when there's more comfortability within all communities, all people and the police, not just the rich white people who have the police protecting their properties. I don't have any ideas or I wouldn't know what that looks like. And that's not my job, frankly, you know, that's 
their job to actually protect and serve the people of the city. And I don't feel like that has been what they've been doing. So I guess it would just be a feeling or it would just be a, a shift in in the way the people of the city, the safety of the people of the city, I guess. What you said, the word trust, that we have trust in the police, that would be a huge step. And I think you have taken a small step, but a great step toward that, going through this process. Congratulations. I might just highlight one additional thing. And it's that, you know, Terry being out there in the streets to document what happened in the summer of 2020 was a tremendous service to everybody, to history, to members of this, this city. Being a uh, press member isn't legally necessarily a difference of um, value or uh, elitism necessarily for somebody being out there in the streets. The rights that Terry was afforded is afforded to all of us. Really, what you look at is conduct. And I think the police saw anybody who stood in their way as a bad actor and wanted to treat them as a criminal when truly we should have been looking in the other direction. And if they had that kind of self-reflection, if they had that kind of, of a real scrutiny, I think that we would see a lot more of this. Terry, I echo Juan's comments. I think this event that you were documenting or attempting to document the protests in the streets of Portland after the murder of George Floyd, that protest, it was a pivotal event, not only in the history of Portland, but in the Black Lives Matter movement, too. So thank you for your, your efforts and your work, and I hope you continue to uh, do well and, and uh, the best of luck. Thank you. I've been speaking with photojournalist Terry Jacobs and Juan Chavez, civil rights attorney with Oregon Justice Resource Center. Thank you to our guests, our engineers, and thank you for listening.